Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to the Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Okay, heads up, everybody, because listening to today's podcast episode can save you thousands of dollars and hours in losses from misguided marketing efforts. I'm your host, Robin Colucci, and welcome to the Author's Corner. Today, I have with me Nikki Nash, who helps entrepreneurs use marketing to build their own businesses on their own terms by positioning themselves as the go-to expert in their industry, which enables them to multiply their sales and grow their businesses through strategic storytelling. She is a Hay House author, motivational speaker, and founder of Market Your Genius, a training and development company on a mission to equip entrepreneurs with the tools and resources they need to share and profit from their message. In our interview today, Nikki shares five common pitfalls that business owners of all kinds fall into when it comes to marketing and how to avoid them. Prior to full-time entrepreneurship, Nikki served as the head of marketing at a tech startup, Rest Devices, senior marketing manager at Intel Corporation, where she won the Marketing Excellence Award, and she was the brand management MBA intern at the Coca-Cola Company, and a media planner and buyer at the advertising agency, Starcom Media, and she was on the Kraft Foods account there. So Nikki has also worked for brands such as InStyle, Travel and Leisure, and Louis Vuitton, Moe Hennessy. Nikki's seen it all from big corporate to small business marketing, and now she is going to share her wisdom with all of our listeners, including you. So Nikki, welcome to the Author's Corner. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. I am so thrilled to have you. And I'm brimming with curiosity about this idea of marketing your genius. I love that. And I guess my first question is, I would love to hear a little bit about how you landed on this particular idea and message of market your genius. Like what led to this point? So I'd love to say that I remember the exact day that I was like, market your genius, that's it. But I do (laughs) remember what led up to this being kind of the phrasing and the messaging and the mission of my book and my podcast and, and a number of brand elements. And it all started when I left my startup job. I was head of marketing at a tech startup after almost decade long career in corporate marketing before that. And when I went out to start my business, the first thing I said to myself was, well, what am I good at? What could I actually sell to people or market and turn into a product or service? And so for me, I'm like, ah, marketing, I will be a marketing consultant or coach or whatever the heck is possible from a marketing perspective. And as I started working with more and more people and I, you know, you pivot a little bit in business, but I started focusing more and more on women who 
were similar to me who said, you know what, for whatever reason, whether it was for personal lifestyle changes, traveling desires, children, but they wanted more flexibility in their schedule and in their life. And they wanted to make a good living doing what they loved and doing it on their own or, and not necessarily only on their own, but on their own. Like terms, if you will. Terms. Exactly. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And so what that really came to for me is that I was helping women turn their experiences and expertise and, you know, their skills and their magic into a profitable business through the lens of marketing. And whether it was personal branding or expert positioning or lead generation, either way, they were marketing their magic, their genius. And I really believe that everybody has something that's unique and essentially their own genius. In addition, in collaboration to their skills and their knowledge, there's something special about all of us and the way we come across. And so, yeah. I'm curious. I want to ask you a question because you know, something I noticed, I used to have a fitness business for 10 years. That, that was like my little detour out of publishing. And, and if there's one thing I learned in 10 years in fitness is there's a lot of people who are really genius at what they do and they're terrible marketers, yes. right? Because they think more like artists, if you will, right? They're so into the craft, the marketing just goes. Phew. So, I mean, do you notice that there's like, what kinds of businesses or like, are there certain kinds of businesses where the marketing is more of a challenge for people, do you find, than others? Or I'm just curious, or is it everybody? You know, I wouldn't say that there's an industry where it's like, oh my goodness, this is so much easier or harder to necessarily market or sell. Sometimes there may be timing where, you know, if you, I'm making this up, but if you are somebody who coaches people on keto and keto suddenly like blew up the news and became big, it may make your life a little bit easier but like, you can't control that, right? Like you seem like a great marketer, (laughs) right? You're just kind of riding the waves of what's going on in the world. But I think most people that I work with and that I speak to are challenged with getting their message out into the world, attracting new clients, getting new leads. If they're writing books, selling books, but like they, it's a challenge, whether you are you know, an author, a speaker, a financial planner, a lawyer, a doctor, a consultant, a coach, you know, a fitness trainer, you know, everybody has challenges in marketing their brand and their message in their business. And part of it is a mindset or visibility block mm-hmm. for some people. And part of it is a marketing strategy challenge or roadblock. But I'd say there are a lot of people across all industries that say to themselves, I am so good at what I do. I can help people. I can transform their lives or their business or their health or their relationships, but I have no idea how to get in front of these people or how the heck to have them say yes to what I'm offering. Right. And you know, one of the challenges I know that anybody who's trading dollars for hours, right, is that when you're really busy with clients, you don't have as much time to market. And then when you don't have as many clients, maybe you don't have as much money to market. What do you say to people who come to you with that challenge? Oh, I have been there. That's what I did first three months of business. And it's funny because people automatically assume, oh, you have a background in marketing. Obviously, you're never going to make a mistake in your own business. It must be so easy for you. (laughs) No, I make the same mistakes as my clients have made. And maybe I just realized it more quickly or recovered a little bit faster, but I made the same mistakes. And when I started my business, I remember I got my first two clients in a week. They were days apart. It was 
amazing. I thought that, you know, at that rate, I was going to have, you know, such a high <laughs> like revenue producing business with all this business. Right. Like, like this is amazing. <laughs> and that was not really the case. Um, but what happened is I got those clients so quickly and then I was so busy focusing on servicing those clients. I forgot to do the things consistently that got me those clients in the first place. So when their contracts were up, all of a sudden I was like, oh crud, I don't have any more money coming in. And then it becomes either, you know, maybe you don't have the money or resources to market, though that's oftentimes not the case. It it could be, oh my goodness, I've now gotten used to a certain income or revenue and I've maybe committed to other expenses and oh crud, I better get this money in. And then there becomes this panic. And it's like, I need these clients to come today or tomorrow. And it doesn't work that fast for a lot of people. And so I've been there, I've done that. And what I usually tell people is that there's marketing that always needs to be done in your business. If you want consistent income, if you want consistent clients, you have to consistently market. And until you've been in business for a really, really long time where you can tell the time period between somebody who hears about you and buys from you on average, you at the beginning don't really know that. And so you don't know if you have to keep marketing for six months or eight months before somebody says yes to you, or if it takes you know two weeks. And so I really encourage people to create a plan, stick to the plan and tweak the plan along the way, but don't kind of start one thing and then throw it out the window and start another thing okay. and throw that out the window and, and that sort of I'm thing. I'm hearing in this advice that you just gave two more common mistakes that maybe we can unpack a little bit more. And one, as you said, have a plan and keep doing the plan. <laughs> yes. What would lead you to say that, Nikki? <laughs> well, funny, you should ask because I think in the first chapter of my book, Real Talk, because I'm like, here are the five common pitfalls oh, of people. And right. one of them I call TMI, which stands for too many ideas, mm. right? Because there's so many people who are like, I have an idea about this and I have an idea about that and I have an idea about this. And every time they have a new idea, they're on to the next one. And it's like, wait, you never actually finished your first idea here. Mm. And in that vein, it's similar, but usually too many ideas creates too many products or services. And then there's what I like to call RSS, which is rapid strategy switching. When you're like, <laughs> oh, here's a strategy. And then you do it once or maybe not at all. And it doesn't work as well as you thought it would. And you're like, screw that. I'm going to do this other thing because somebody just showed me an ad about how magical this other thing I could be doing is. And then you have people, you know, I did webinars, I did challenges, I did a live launch, I spoke on stages, I did one podcast interview, and I didn't make a billion dollars. And now I'm never guesting on another podcast again. I'm being melodramatic on purpose. But, you know, like that happens. I've done that. I've done it. I've said, yes, so and so told me this is the way to fame and fortune. And I'm going to follow this. And then I did it once. And I'm like, ah, that didn't really work out at all. All right, I'm going to do something else now. Right? Yeah. And so it's like this digging these really shallow holes and being surprised when you don't tap, you know, hit oil. <laughs> exactly. It's yeah. like you have a thousand really tiny holes. And if you took all of like the depth that you created and you put them all in one concentrated area, you probably would have hit gold or hit or struck oil. Right. right. And yeah. so I call, you know, unvalidated marketing is another challenge where people don't take the time to test and validate the one idea they had 
in order to make sure it works. And if it didn't work, then you don't go, well, let me throw the baby out with the bathwater. You're like, which is an expression I never really understood, but I'm just like, my grandmother said it all the time and I know what it means, but I don't know where it came from. I'm like, who throws a baby out with the bathwater? But, you know, like instead of, you know, throwing all of your effort and magic out the window, you could go, okay, well, I did this thing. I tracked the results. This is what happened. It could have been better. Here's what I think would make it better. And now I'm going to try again. Yeah. Because yeah. real talk, who's accomplished anything successfully on the first try in anything and then maintained that, you know? Yeah, right. And maintained it. Yeah. Right. We set such unrealistic expectations for ourselves as entrepreneurs sometimes where I'm like, could you walk a mile on your first time ever walking? Yeah. <laughs> like, probably not. I'm a parent and now I have two grown children, but when my kids were little and they used to watch movies by a certain large movie company that does a lot of kids films, that's also to to remain unnamed, but I get where you're going. (laughs) But you know how it's like the kid really wants to play baseball or really wants to learn how to play the piano or the clarinet or God knows, you know, wants to win the dance competition and they suck at first. And then with a three-minute montage with a music accompaniment, they're like a champion-level player. Yeah, either that or they like break their arm and there's some sort of freak accident. I forget which movie that was, but that it was a movie. It's like, you sucked, you broke your arm, it healed funny, and now you're amazing. Right? And it's like, as a parent, this was infuriating to me because here I am trying to teach my children that if you really want to master something, you have to suck at it over and over and over again. And gradually become better until you don't suck. <laughs> you know? And these montages, I would be like, oh God, now you know it's going to be all that extra parental coaching. I mean, do you see that with your clients that they're kind of responding in a similar way when they, of course, before you've worked with them, but when maybe when they first come to you, that it's kind of a similar dynamic or? Yeah, all the time. And it's funny because instead of it being a movie company that's doing this, it's a lot of other entrepreneurs and no shade. And I get the marketing strategy behind it. But if they can show like, Hey, I'm going to show you my 1% of my, all of my clients success story. And (laughs) all people are showing, it's probably not even 1%. It's like 0.1% of the people that do my program reaches this level success of success this quickly, but I'm going to promote the heck out of them. And I'm going to let everybody think that they can make six figures, seven figures, eight figures in like 90 days or like three days or like two seconds, right? Mm -hmm. And it's consistently marketed. Then if somebody were to try something in the same time period and fail, then it must be something wrong with the program. It's like, oh, well, this program wasn't right for me because this other one says they can actually help me get that result. And the reality is, is that you don't know anybody's precursor to their experience. You have no idea if they had been building their business for like 10 years and all these people knew who they were and then they did one thing to tweak it and suddenly they made a whole bunch of money, right? And so I think that happens all the time and I speak to people and it's a challenge for a lot of folks because you know I'm not saying that you won't be the the person that wins the lottery metaphorically because you could, but the reality is, is most people don't. So if you can realize that and be comfortable with that and set more realistic, attainable actions for yourself, then you won't constantly feel like, oh, you know, I've missed the bar again. I've missed it again. I've missed it again and and feel defeated. Yeah, I see that so often when people want help writing their books 
if they don't already have some momentum with their brand and their business, a book isn't going to rescue them from their obscurity or their money problem, right? Preach. <laughs> like, I love everything you're saying. Keep going, but preach. And remind me, I have a side comment on that topic around oh, books. I, I said, I think we got it across. What's oh, your, yeah. what's your, how would you add to that? So I was doing a training to a group of authors or aspiring authors and aspiring authors. And somebody had asked me how they can essentially make enough money to fund their life from their first book. And I was like, (laughs) I was like, that is so cute. And I love you. And I don't want to be a dream crusher here, but statistically that is not happening. Like statistically, the people who make the amount of money from book sales that you would like to make already have way more money. And this is like such a small amount of money to them that it's kind of like, that's not why they're doing it. They're doing it for a branding and marketing perspective. Now I'm telling you to preach because that is so true. I mean, it's like the, the, the you can't even afford a lifestyle of like living on the Santa Monica pier yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for, for what, <laughs> what a, an, a book that isn't driven by a, somebody who has a, a really big platform is going to provide financially. And I think there's this um, fantasy land of, and it, like you said, the lottery, right? Like I'm going to put my book on Amazon, sell a hundred thousand copies and go live in Bora Bora. And it's like, well, some people win the Powerball lottery and maybe you'd win that lottery on Amazon, but this is not something that is a strategy. I wouldn't recommend this as a marketing strategy or a business, right. a business strategy. strategy. Like <laughs> for people who are writing, you know, nonfiction books, whether it's a teaching memoir or a self-help book or a how-to book or things along those lines, most people make their money by offering a course or a membership or consulting or speaking or coaching. I can't remember if I said that already, but they offer like an agency, some sort of service or something on the back end. And that's where they make their money. And the book is really more of a marketing tool than anything else. Like they may make money, some money off of it, but it's really a marketing tool. Yeah. And what I'd add to that too, is don't do the book first. Like don't write a book to have a business. You want to have a business and then write a book Yeah, grow the business. Cause that's another thing I see a lot of people selling is this idea of like, write a book and then you can build a business off of a book, but you know, you're not going to have a whole lot of value to share in a book for a business you've never done. Yeah. I mean, unless you're literally writing a memoir or something or like a teaching memoir. And even then I still would probably recommend you have the book first. I mean, the business first, but at least then you're at least sharing your own life. But like, if you're writing, if the intention of the book is to train somebody or help them with something, ideally you would have actually trained people and helped them in that thing to help. Right. Help put it in the book. A good result. Yeah. Right. And, and yeah. memoir is not, it's an acquired taste. Not yeah. a, and unless you're really famous. Yeah. Uh, people aren't reading it. About your yeah. yeah. Now that we've killed all their dreams, Dream now, pressures. Now, <laughs> <laughs> let's give some good news because this idea of market your genius, like give me an example. Can you, speaking of clients, like, was there somebody in particular who came to you where their zone of genius, you know, maybe on the surface initially seemed like, how are we going to create a business around this? And then you help them find a way. You know, what's funny is that I think my brain just works differently where like <laughs> people can 
say, you know, this is my business and somebody else would, or this is my book idea. And somebody else will go, how the heck is that going to be a business? And fundamentally where I start looking is what is the problem that somebody would have such that they would even care about what you're offering, right? Like, obviously if I had brain damage, I'd probably want to see, you know, maybe a brain surgeon or a neurologist or something. I probably should have chosen the field that I had way more expertise in, but okay. Like if I'll give a real example, that's helpful. You know, I'm moving into a new office building and the one I'm renting, I love the space, but it desperately needs a paint job. Like it needs somebody to come in there and do the paint job. And if I am a painter, I might go, you know, if you look around and you feel like, you know, your office space doesn't represent the high quality that you want to deliver to people, you may need a paint job. We'll do the trick. And then you sell them in on the paint job, right? And Mm -hmm. so you want to figure out why would somebody care? Because when somebody buys your book or pays for your services or product, they don't wake up one morning and go, you know what? I really want to buy Robin. Robin's amazing. I would like to go buy her today. Like, <laughs> they maybe wake up and go, man, I really want to write a book and I have no idea what the heck I'm doing. Or they may be like, wow, you know, I wrote this book and I know I wasn't supposed to write it before I started my business, but I did. And now I need to go figure out how to fix this. <laughs> you know, like they have some sort of problem or something in which right. they would go, who could help me? And then you're there saying, I can help you. This is my zone of genius. Mm-hmm. But I think when people can get at the core of what is the problem that somebody would actually pay to solve? Because a lot of people have problems, but if they're not willing to pay to solve them, then that doesn't help you either. But if you can figure out that problem that people would pay to solve to which your book and business is the solution, then you're in a good spot. I mean, at least a good starting point. Yeah. And that really is so true. And I think that it seems to me that there's really no limit to what kinds of problems people would pay to solve, (laughs) you know? Yeah, it's really something. The funny thing is, is the hardest part is not so much finding the problem people will solve is choosing the one problem you really believe you solve, because that's where like too many ideas come up where Mm -hmm. people are like, oh, well, I could solve this problem. I can solve this problem. I can solve this problem. But usually like if you were to see a healer or, you know, a medicine person or doctor, there's usually a root cause to all of the other problems. So there might be symptoms, but there's Mm -hmm. usually a root cause. And so what you want to do is figure out what the root cause is to your people's, your ideal target audience and ideal readers problem. And you can say, I help you solve this problem. And when you solve this problem, all of these other symptoms will go away as well. And that's where you really are making magic happen. Yeah. As opposed to trying to solve all of the symptoms and saying, I have all of these symptoms that I can solve. It's like, great. Take a step back. What's the core problem? I love that because one of the things that actually used to frustrate me when I had all these colleagues in the health and fitness industry is there were a lot of, and I mean, incredibly bright, talented people, but it's like, oh, and I'm a massage therapist and I'm a Reiki master and I do sound healings and I do angel readings and I do this and I do that. And it's like, okay, those are things you do, right? Maybe treatments you offer, but like you said, what's the core problem you're solving? Yeah, absolutely. Those are just tools in your toolkit. You know, you can say, and I'm making this up, but maybe you help people with pain management, right? Or like back pain. I'll get really specific. Maybe you help people with back pain and you may use acupuncture or you may use 
you know, Reiki. I don't actually know if half of these actually solve the problem. So I apologize to people, but I feel like it does because I've I've, you're right there. Reiki, massage, acupuncture, acupuncture. all those things. Yeah. Chiropractic. Chiropractics. Exactly. Like you can come up with the right treatment based off of the person and where they're feeling pain and what is the right kind of package for them based off of their kind of comfort and desire. But at the end of the day, you solve back pain. And then that's the difference versus saying, you know, I go to a masseuse every month because I also see a a mobility coach, but I have my symptom was very tight hamstrings. That Uh is not my root cause. And so I'm simultaneously treating the symptom and the root cause because if the root cause plan to treat is a bit longer then I don't want like, you know, like as I keep running, I'm like, I don't want this to feel worse. So I have to right. get both. Right. Oh, and right. so you yeah. want to really look at what is the actual problem that people are having. And when you're able to say, oh yeah, all these symptoms are actually because this root cause, and that's what we're going to work on while alleviating the pain or the problems from these symptoms, people look at you and suddenly I'm making this up at like $99 for a massage. Like suddenly you're selling, you know, a thousand dollar package to relieve back pain and massage is just a part of it. Yeah, I love that. That's so great. So something else that's really true in what you're saying is like, like, let's use the back pain as an example too, because probably if you know how to solve back pain, you also know how to solve other kinds of pain. Okay. I'm going to let you finish. Yeah. No, I know you're getting where I'm going with this. I totally get where you're going with this. And, And what I encourage people to do, especially at the beginning is choose a problem or something as specific as possible that you can get case studies, results, testimonials in, and then you can expand from there. And I had a mentor and he was literally, I had one mentoring session with this person at an event while I lived in Boston. Can't remember his name, but I tell the story that he told me all the time. So shout out to this man who I can't remember his name or what he looks like, but I know that I was in Boston when I talked to him. So, you know. (laughs) Oh my gosh. All right. Wouldn't it be great if he was listening? (laughs) He's listening. He's like, that was me. Right. He's listening, gentlemen, reach out to us. Nikki wants to thank you personally. All right. Go on. Absolutely. Because I feel like I tell this story in the book or at least definitely on YouTube at some point, (laughs) but he was a veteran and he said, you know, if you were at war, for example, and your enemies occupied a beach, you wouldn't send your troops to the entire beach. If you needed to conquer the beach, you would choose an edge of the beach And then gradually conquer the next adjacent place and the next adjacent place and the next adjacent place until you had the whole beach. And he's like, that's what people need to do with their, you know, niches or niche or however you want to say it, wherever you are in the world. It's like, you don't think, wow, I'm solving this very specific problem for this very specific person. And that's it. It's that you make enough impact so that you own an area and then you can keep moving over and over and over to the next adjacent area until you've essentially conquered the world, right? Yeah. And that's what I wish more people got because I think a lot of people out there have taught, you know, you have to create this one product for this one specific segment in the marketplace. And that's not true. You know what I mean? Technically, if somebody's designing, you know, I think of Macs or laptops, you know, I was the only person in my family for a long time that had a Mac. I was in one of the early adopters. I've had one since probably like middle school or high school. My whole family made fun wow. of me. They're like, I don't even understand why you like this device. Now tell you what, go through my parents' house and tell me who has a non-Mac product. 
nobody. And I'm like, yeah, you're welcome. Right. But they went after a specific market first. I don't even think I was in their additional target market, but it worked for me. You go after somebody initially, you know, whether it's creatives or early adopters or whoever you think is going to be right for you. And you make such an impact with them that they become the people who give you testimonials, case studies, share how amazing it is, spread the word of mouth, spread, you know, all sorts of things so that you can continue to grow and expand who you're reaching. Yeah, brilliant. That is such a brilliant example too. Well, I think Apple was so genius about it because I would bet that they, it was probably somebody who identifies as creative because I remember actually when I bought my first Mac, it's because a client of mine was like, well, what kind of laptop do you have? And she goes, are you PC or Mac? And I'm like, well, I have a PC. She goes, oh. <laughs> she's like, I never have you for a PC person. I'm like, well, why do you say that? You're so creative. And she's like, Macs are for creative people. And oh my God, right? I'm like, well, I have to be in the creative column. <laughs> to be that creative person. Now I got my first MacBook Air and I think I'm on my fourth now, right? So, I mean, it's interesting, but that's really sophisticated marketing. That's like identity. Like something about the brand is something that the person is associating with their identity. Do you see that this is possible for solopreneurs to accomplish as well? You know, I think conceptually it is. And even in reality, if you create a movement or something around what you do, then yes, absolutely. But I think for a lot of people, depending on their business, they may not be out to create a specific movement in which maybe there's literally people being proud to be a part of the community. Even if they don't have physical products, maybe there's merch or something that solidifies them or makes them feel a part of the community. You can absolutely do that with movements. But I think what's also equally as important for most people that are building essentially personal brand businesses mm-hmm. is that you're crystal clear on who you are and how you show up in the world so that people can identify if they want you in their circle. Hmm. Because I think when, are you their mentor? Are you their friend? Are you somebody who's right there next to them going along with it? Are you somebody who's been there and done that? Like, who are you to these people or to your ideal audience? And how do you want to come across, right? Hmm. And so when you're clear on that, that's probably the first step is to have people want to be have you in their circle, even if they will never meet you and they'll only read your book or they'll only buy an online course or something. But give them enough of you. You know, if a lot of people, whether you love or hate Oprah, Oprah has built a brand where people associate her with certain things. And so if Oprah sells something and people are like, wow, this is coming from Oprah, I want, you know, I want to be in Oprah's inner circle. That's a thing, right? Right. But I think it's interesting because what you said is if they want you in their inner circle, which is something I hadn't heard before. So, I mean, I've heard about wanting them to be in yours. Or, you know, like getting them to the point where they want to be in your community. But this is an interesting point of view. Can you say more about that? Because I haven't really heard anybody talk about it in that way before. Yeah, you know, my perspective or two cents is that so often personal brand businesses or people who are experts in an industry or an area are creating communities and saying, hey, do you want to be a part of this community? Because, you know, we're so amazing. But the way that I often look at it is if I'm monetizing my personal brand, right? I want people to feel as though they've gotten to know me to a certain extent where they can decide for themselves if they would ever want me in their kind of loyalty circle or not, right? And so when I look at it that way, I'm very clear on who I am as a person 
what parts of my life I'm willing to share publicly, you know, because as much as I am a public person, meaning like I'm on YouTube, I'm on podcasts, I wrote a freaking book, like I'm out there. I'm also a very private person. And I think that's something that people often get collapsed. Like, oh, if you're public, you know, no, like we still don't know who Mindy Kaling's bothered who her children. I think that's the most amazing thing in the world. I hope that we never find out. I want to be that person. I want people to be like, oh, she has kids. No idea who her husband is or if she had babies with someone or if she, you know, did in a sperm bank or whatever. Like I'm cool with that because I don't need my personal life to be public, but I want people to publicly feel like they know who I am and what I stand for and what I'm like, and to powerfully choose if they want to be associated with me or not. Well, I think, boy, this is such another great point. And actually, I was recently at a conference where this question came up of when you do have a personal brand, and especially when you have a personal brand that maybe you're helping people deal with something that maybe you've been through. You know, there is this question that I think comes up, or I've seen come up for people, regardless of what they're helping people with, where if it's related to something that they've overcome or they've gone through that was difficult, how much do I share? And what's, how much is too much? You know, I'm curious, like, but imagine your clients probably come to you with this kind of a question. What advice do you give? Yeah. It starts with first, you have to figure out where you are in the journey or the cycle of things that you've been through and are going through, because if you're in the the midst of something (laughs) traumatic or not that pleasant, or you're still figuring things out, it's not most likely the ideal time to publicly share it, especially if you are looking to be someone's mentor or advisor, yeah. right? And it's not the ideal time to be coaching people through it either. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Cause you're still figuring it out yourself, right? Like hopefully you're at the phase of getting your own support. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so the first thing that's important is that whatever it is that you want to publicly share or help people with is that that's in your not necessarily in your past, but you've worked through it, right? To a certain extent, you know, there are certain things in life where it's like, and you're constantly going to have to deal with it, but you've at least gotten to the point where it's not like a traumatic response to it for you for the most part, right? Yeah. And then in terms of how much to share, you get to choose, right? Like you get to choose how much you share and how much you don't share. And you can share very little while making people feel like they know you a lot. Right, yep. And that's who I am. Most people won't actually believe it because I do share certain things. But, you know, when you read my book, you get a clear sense of who I am and what I'm like. I'm very much like I am right now. That's who I am. It's how I tell stories. (laughs) It's the way I write. It's who I am. Right. But I tell stories that are seemingly innocent, like, you know, really tiny stories to make a point, but you feel like you get to know me. Right. I share a story about a woman who was at a nursing home and I volunteered there in middle school. And she had all of these little boxes, like little painted, almost, you know, the little boxes you get with earrings inside. If you buy from a department store, she essentially had things that side made out of probably cardboard and she painted them. And she's like, what do I do with all these boxes? And as little young Nikki, I'm like, what? I'm going to sell them for you because who could resist (laughs) buying a box from a middle schooler for an elderly woman, right? (laughs) Oh my God, a born marketer, Nikki. (laughs) Born marketer, right? But I tell stories like that to illustrate points in business, but people are like, wow, I really feel like I know what Nikki was like growing up. It's an innocent story. I'm purely comfortable telling that story. It has no real, in fact, it wasn't until I was writing the book that that story even made its way into my mind to prove a point, which 
spoiler alert for people who are like, Nikki, what the heck was the point of that story? Why is it in your book? It was about the importance of understanding market need because apparently a lot of people could resist buying a little oh. box of earrings, like a, not even with earrings in it, like just like a little painted box oh. from a middle schooler <laughs> selling on behalf of an elder lady. It's like, you have to understand market need and who your right audience is in the first place. Cause I could have been marketing in the wrong pool. There's so many things that you need to learn and you can pull lessons like that and share that publicly. And people are like, oh my gosh, I really feel like I get to know you. You're amazing. But you will not hear me publicly talk about like things that are personal to me that I like to keep personal. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's something I get asked about too, is like, you know, how much should I share? And especially when people have been through trauma, right? And I always say, you know, your reader can fill in the blanks. You can just acknowledge this happened. And the reader who's really going to connect with it is the one who's gone through a similar experience and they're going to fill in with their own. And you don't have to re-traumatize yourself over and over and over again, telling the story of your traumas. 100%. You know, there are a number of public figures out there and there are many who keep traumatic experiences completely private. They may share or acknowledge that they happen, but they keep the details and things very private. And there are people who maybe with less traumatic things, but that literally, you know, what their bedroom looks like and maybe even their underwear (laughs) drawer, like, you know, everything about them because it's everywhere and you get to choose where on that spectrum you are. But I don't think that it will impact how well, like how much you share doesn't have to impact how well people connect with you or how well they feel like they know you. It's how you do it. Right. Exactly. And you need to feel comfortable sharing to the level that's right for you and understand that they don't need any more details than you feel comfortable sharing. Absolutely. And you can share like in the book, I share stories from a TV show. Like I literally talk about a part of an episode of a TV show that I used to watch all the time growing up. Real talk still watch because it's still on, on like streaming networks. But like that gives people insight into, oh, well, I watch that show too. I feel connected to you. Right. So you don't have to even half the time share things that specific. Yeah. I love that because that's also something I advise too, is like, look at just also not just your own experience, but, and not just the experience of your clients, but the world around you, like, what are you observing? And, you know, how can you tie somebody else's experience that you're observing or something or a TV show or something in the popular culture that you've observed that also proves your point or demonstrates your point? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm right there with you. I think you get to choose and that's really empowering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this, because I think a big challenge with all of us who are the brand and, you know, for my company is Arcalici LLC. So (laughs) I'm a classic example, but, and it's great for so many reasons. And there's this element of when you are the face of the brand and you are the brand, do you ever advise your clients on exit strategy or how do you make that transition? Oh, she's getting ready. I'm stretching. She's getting ready to get there. (laughs) And it's because it's something that I've thought a lot about for my own business. Right. And one of the things that I used to believe, and I've seen tons of examples where it's not entirely true that because the brand is my name and started off as my name, that it would therefore be harder to sell 
or to exit out of, right? But then, you know, the universe has an interesting way of proving you wrong or showing things in your life where you're like, all right, let's be real. Oprah, I'll just use her as a public figure and I'll share a whole bunch of others. (laughs) Oprah is not running Oprah magazine, you know, or, (laughs) you know, all this other stuff. It's not like she's gone, like she's still alive, but she's not in the weeds day to day making stuff with her name on it, go out into the world. She obviously has probably like guidelines. I really would love like Oprah shout out. If you're listening to this, I would love to pick your brain on some things because I know that you've (laughs) done things to protect your brand, which I'm sure are from a legal perspective, fascinating and like systems and structures. You can put things in place where it doesn't have to be you. And then you think about, you know, Stephen Covey and that brand still exists. He's not here anymore. Right. Michael Hyatt, somebody who I follow a lot. He just stepped down from being CEO of his company it's called Michael Hyatt and company, right? Like he's no longer, he's on the board, but he's like, peace out. And it was something that they had a plan for. And so I think what's important is if your brand is your name, know that there's still value in the assets. Like if you think about the other assets that you have from a business, whether it's, do you have a subscription-based model and are you consistently bringing in or recurring revenue? Do you have a large email list that I'm sure somebody will want? Do you have a sub brand or the name of something or a podcast that has listeners or like that somebody would want? And so you can decide when it's time to exit to leave everything together and have a succession plan. And maybe for Michael Hyatt, his daughter took over. I don't have kids right now. As of yet, I am very clear that I will be an older parent should I have kids because I'm 37. And so I'm just thinking, you know, man, I'm gonna have to be in business for a while before any of my kids potentially are even old enough and possible to even think if they want the business, right? So like, that may not be my succession plan, but (laughs) you know, there's other people besides family. Exactly. And so there's (laughs) other people that will, will potentially want it. Maybe they'll take the assets and rebrand. And then you just have to be really, um, usually when that happens and keep in mind, I am not the exit expert but I have given a lot of thought and research to it. Like you can choose usually even just from my startup experience, the company I worked at was almost acquired. You stay on, you can stay on and choose to stay on for a certain period of time to help with that transition. So it's not like you're, you go, well, I'm ready to exit. And then you exit the next day. It's a strategy. And when you're at that level of business, you start going through the process, but I would do your due diligence to find out for anybody who's listening and thinking about it, what it takes to exit a business and what people who will potentially want to buy your business will look for. Because if you can get that figured out early, it may change strategically what you do for your business today. Because usually when you're ready to exit, if that's when you start thinking about it, it's a bit too late. Yeah. Then you have to retool so many things. Speaking of Stephen Covey, it reminds me of the begin with the end in mind, right? Yes. That's my favorite habit. Habit number two. I think it's my favorite habit too, now that I think of it, because it's actually how we approach book writing too. (laughs) Yeah, that's brilliant. I love that. But yeah, and really it's so true. And it can be so difficult when you're in the throes of those early days of the business to be thinking that far down the road, or maybe you're just so in love with it. You can't even imagine that you'd ever want to exit or pull back or, you know, hand off some of the responsibility or whatever. But it's it is good advice. It's good advice, Nikki. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta pass it, pay it forward. You know, when somebody tells you something, 
and you listen, you better share it with somebody else. There you go. <laughs> That's sure. All right. So we have a few minutes left. And so my favorite final question is, what didn't I ask that I should have? Ew. So I'm going to say, and only because this popped into my head right before you asked that question, and it kind of stems from begin with the end in mind, but it's like, what would you tell people who are writing a book to grow their business to think about or do before they finish their book? So it's definitely goes with begin with the end in mind, but I'm going to elaborate on that. And for you have to get clear on what you want the book to do for your business. And so for example, for me, I don't look at this book as a revenue generating product, right? I mean, I'm working with a publisher. I love Hay House, their magic, but real talk, people who have traditional book deals don't make money from book sales. (laughs) I think I make like a dollar a book or something, right? Like, and and that's for the paperback that let's not even get started with other ones. So it's, (laughs) it's not a money play. I'll put it that way. But for me, it was a lead generation play. And so for me, I sat down and I thought, okay, well, how the heck do I get people to go from book to joining my email list or joining a community or something along those lines. And so what I did, and I got this from Pat Flynn, he did this for his book, Will It Fly? And I listened to him on a podcast. I think he was on the self-publishing school podcast or something. I don't know what he was on, but he was on a podcast and he said this, and I was like, this is genius. So I'm going to share it with you guys. And what he said that he did was he created what would be considered, he calls it a companion course for his book that had digital copies of any of the exercises or worksheets or any bonus materials for everything. Right. And what he did throughout the book is he would say, you know, to download this, go to the, get the companion course. And it would be just a URL. So I think it's marketyourgeniusbook.com. And then there's different links. It's like forward slash start or forward slash chapter one or whatever. Right. And it's all throughout the book. And then all the companion courses is literally digital versions of the stuff. And then if I mention a podcast episode of mine or something, I link to that in there. It's super simple. But to get access to that, people have to fill out an opt-in page, giving me their name and email address and bam, they're now leads, right? And writing this book has been one of the best lead generating things for my business because pretty much from the day the book released, because that's when everybody got their Kindle or their audiobooks or, you know, started getting physical copies in the mail. I just saw every single day more and more and more people join my email list. And yeah. so you have to get clear on what you want to happen. And for me, it's kind of like if they join my email list, then I can continue to connect with them and roll them into another product or service. But I need to be able to contact them first because if I'm yeah. selling books on Amazon or Target or Barnes and Noble, I don't have their contact information. I don't know who the heck they are. So definitely think about that stuff before you finish the book, because if you think about it afterwards, then it's like, if it's published, you're too late, right? You can't go back and be like, Hey, can you, can you guys um, join you know, my email list? I know we're in proofs, but I have about 16 links. I want to add. Yeah, exactly. Good luck with that. Yeah. I, th- I think that's so true. I'll just add to what you're saying because it's so important too to think about like, how do you intend to use this book as a tool to grow your business? And so, like you said, you're going to use it as a lead generation tool to build your list. So when you really clear, like that's the primary focus, then you crafted the book to support that focus. And so it's really about like, how do you see yourself using this book in your business, right? Like what is its role? If, if you're bringing your book on as like another team member, what are its responsibilities and how can you create it so that it 
can meet those responsibilities. And, you know, like the big reason I wrote my book, for example, is I heard myself say the same stuff over and over and over again. And I thought, you know, what would be great (laughs) is if I could say, read chapters one through four before our next call. And then we could get into the particulars of what they're trying to figure out for their book without me having to explain all the foundational information of what I'm about to lead them through. 100%. I love that. And for some people, it may be, I need people to read this book because then they'll actually understand why they need me and hire me. And so, you know, if I didn't have a traditional book deal, I probably would have, my goal might've been a little bit different. And I might've just said, I'm going to write this book, I'm going to publish it. And then I'm just going to mail it to people and say, you know, as a little gift, that will have them go, oh my goodness, I need you, right? Or I want to invest in your services and choose you over someone else. So you get to choose. I love that. I had a client who was in a highly niched area who did that and made buku, like multiple six and seven figure deals by doing that. And that you don't have to sell one book. If you mail out a hundred books a year to a highly curated list, that might just be all you need to do. Exactly. Yeah, those are real strategies. And so I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Nikki, this has been such a joy. I have loved every minute of speaking with you. And how can our listeners find you? The best place to go is if you go to NikkiNash.co forward slash magic. I was going to change the URL just now. And I was like, maybe I can create something different for this. <laughs> but it's really just duck, NikkiNash.co forward slash magic. If you go there, you will not only see how you can connect with me, but I have a number of freebies on there that will help you figure out how do you, whether it's build your author platform or generate leads for your business or things like that. So it's got some great free resources on it. That is fantastic. Oh my gosh. I'm so happy that we spoke today. And we will also put that link in the blog post that's connected with this episode so people can find it there as well. So Nikki, thank you once again for being with us on the Author's Corner today. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of The Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time.